Crispick is a graduate of Bath Spa MA programme in children's writing and he's written blogs and features for The Guardian and Bustle.com on many young adult issues. When not writing, he works part-time for the global NGO Whale and Dolphin Conservation, alongside carrying out many school visits and writing workshops. His love of the ocean and surfing has inspired much of his writing, including his latest title, Girl, Boy, Sea, a tale of storm, shipwreck and survival. Chris met with Nicky Gamble to talk about his book and his travels around the world. Our podcast in the Reading Corner is mainly for teachers, student teachers and librarians and I suspect some are still to discover you. So I wonder if we could start by telling us a little bit about how you came to be a children's writer. I have always wanted to write for young people as long as I can remember. And then round about 12, 14 years ago, I thought, oh, flip, I'd better have a go at this if I'm ever going to do it. And wrote two or three uh, books, you know, first draft of each of them did the classic author thing of sending it off to lots of agents, lots of publishers, got loads of rejections, but the rejections got better, if that's possible. So it started off with the slips, and then there was the, uh, you know, it's not for us, but... And then the, can you send us three chapters? We love it, but actually, we, you know, we love the idea, and we love the first few chapters, but actually the whole thing is not good enough. And it's sort of going through these grades, I suppose, of, of, of rejection. And then somebody said, why don't you go and do the Bath Spa MA in writing for young people? And that's what I did, and I've never looked back. Mm. I love that idea of learning how to read a rejection. And actually, this is a positive rejection. <laughs> yes. It's very gutting, of course. <laughs> you think, you know, people say all these lovely things about it. They bother to put pen to paper, but still they're saying no. But it teaches you a lot, and it teaches yes. you about... I naively thought that, you know, you do one draft of something, and that's... I didn't know about drafting. Mm. So you quickly get used to that idea that people are going to say no to you, but they're going to tell you what's wrong with your book. And if you're smart... You will mm. listen and you will mm. adapt. Mm. And what, what did you gain from doing the Bath Spa Creative Writing course? It's got a very good reputation, fantastic writers, yeah. um, you know, really good record of getting writers to publication yes. as well. Uh, but as a, as a developing writer, what were the biggest benefits to you? I mean, I mean there were many. Um, the first and most important was listen to you know so there's a lot of group crep work so listen to what other people have to say and really listen to people who who've been in in the sort of business industry publication writers people like Julia Green Steve mm. Vogue and David Almond and Lucy Christopher you know really listen to what they have have to say I, I would say on the course there were generally two kinds of writers those who really wanted to come onto the course and be told that what they were doing was fantastic and then there were those who really wanted to come on the course because they knew they haven't got it right and actually had to, in a way, restart mm. and sort of go, go back to basics. Um, I think a great lesson was keeping it simple. Mm-hmm. So my writing is relatively short, staccato. You know, it's not o- overly complex or, or poetic or, or flowery. And uh, Julia Green really taught me that. But also through the reading, so reading her books... She's one of my favourite authors, reading David Alman's books and people like Meg Rosoff or Kevin Brooks's books. They, they seem so simple on the surface, mm. and they are in, in some of the language, but, so, but it's so rich. Mm. So that was really inspiring. Mm. So I definitely learned to keep it simple, to listen to other people, and that um, writing is rewriting. Mm. 
you know, drafting is so 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 important. It, it would be a miracle if you if you wrote your your sixty thousand word draft and you got it right. Mm-hmm. You'd have to be very lucky or very 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 talented. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you mustn't let that stop you putting pen to paper or getting stuck into the keyboard, if you like, because that can be an inhibitor, can't it? The fact that you you think you've got all these rewrites to do. Sometimes you just got to crack on and bash it out. You've got to crack on. You've got to, to dive in. It's the it's the ninety nine percent slog thing. You know, one percent inspiration. Mm-hmm. And I had no, until I started working with other writers and started working with some of the tutors. I didn't know that 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 was the case. But of course, it makes it makes complete sense. Mm. And, and then, so work, working with other writers, working with tutors, and, and then more latterly, um, you know, really understanding the role of the editor. That, that's, mm. that's, that's been quite a journey for me. And, uh, you know, I, I'm probably more of a collaborative writer now than probably most writers are, uh, and pr- certainly more than I ever was before. Mm, fantastic. So we do want to talk about Girl, Boy, C. Yes. Uh, I wonder if you can start by just setting the story up for us. Don't tell us too much. We want there to be some surprises in there for readers, but give us a sense of what the story's about. Okay, well, it's a very um, simple premise. So there's a, 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 an English boy called Bill, 15 years old, and he's on uh, Atlantic Sail Channel. It's called the Duke of Edinburgh, but, but sailing. And um, a storm comes from nowhere, as they sometimes do, and the ship, the, the boat goes down, and he is separated from uh, the rest of the crew and left alone in the tender. So the tender is the small ship to shore boat at the back of the yacht. He's left alone, very few provisions, three days, and then he finds in the water an, an unconscious girl called Aya, who's a Berber from, from Morocco, um, who, her boat has also gone down and then the, the, the rest of the book is really about their story of survival their story of getting to know each other but the slightly left field thing that's thrown in there is that she, to pass the time as much as anything recounts what at first appeared to be tales from Sherazade from the Thousand and One Arabian Nights so there are stories within the story <laughs> and as the story progresses we begin to realise that these are not necessarily tales from Sherazade these are her way of telling about some of her own experiences. Mm-hmm. I won't say more than that to spoil mm-hmm. it. So it's very much a story of survival, but it's a, a, a story of, you know, a boy and a girl in a, in a mm-hmm. boat, but it's a story about stories as well. Mm-hmm. We'll come back to the Scheherazade uh, thing uh, in a little while, but I think to give us a flavour, it would be good to hear how Bill um, gets cast adrift, really, when the ship goes down, yes. the yacht goes down. This is uh, chapter four, so just before he gets sort of stranded in in, in the tender. I froze, half off the boat, clinging to the ladder for long seconds, not believing. But I couldn't wait or think. I climbed back on board and rushed to the cabin. It was filling quickly. I made myself jump in, fighting panic, fighting the fear that I'd be held in there, that I'd die. I waded through, too slow, the water nightmare thick. I grabbed a plastic bag and filled it in a blur of action. Tins, water bottles, book and pen. My hands just grabbed stuff without thinking. I must have found the knife too, though I don't remember that. I chucked the bag in the tender, winched it down and climbed in, cutting the rope before the sinking yacht could suck me down with it. Like the raft, I was taken, pushed and whirled away from Pandora and into chaos. I kept in the centre, sitting low on the floor, gripping the sides. I went so far, so fast, I didn't even see Pandora go under. I shouted, Wilco, Dan, Sam, 
Pete! I was thrown up and over and down valleys of water. Rain fell in sheets. The winds raged. There was no light now. I was lost. I tried to stay in the middle of the boat, but had to move this way or that when a wave tipped the boat sideways. More than once I thought I'd capsize. In a moment, when the storm slackened, I found the hold at the back of the boat and shoved the bags and bottles inside. I put the oars on the floor, sat on them, stopped them going overboard, and held onto the gunnels. And I have to say, you would think that a story, and and the first part of this story, is just Bill and his boat. Um, So there's not a lot of seascape, you know, or, or landscape, and there's not a lot you can do in a space that's so confined. And yet, you really kept me turning the pages. Great. I found it really thrilling uh, read. Um, we need to know a little bit about where the idea for this story came from. I know that the sea is important to yes. you. Yes. So, was that the starting point? Where, where did it all begin? The sea does seem to be the starting point for a lot of my stories. It's a real passion. I'm a, I'm a surfer. I'm half Norwegian. My grandfather was a boat builder. His brothers were whalers. Uh, I used to work full-time and still work part-time for whale and dolphin conservation. So, you know, without wanting to be too corny about it, I think the sea is very much um, in my blood. So I had the idea... uh, The Old Man and the Sea is one of my favourite ever books. Talk about simple writing with a lot of complexity underneath it. You know, it's just fantastic. So I love that book. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to do a sort of um, early YA or, or teen version of that? So I started writing a book about boy stranded alone at sea because what that book does for those that don't know is an old man out at sea learning to catch a fish surviving a storm and it's it's just that and it's about everything that goes through his head and what he goes through it's a very sort of closed world so I wanted to write a version of that and I I, uh, tried a sort of early draft of the first couple of chapters uh, with some writing uh, chums of mine and somebody said uh, what would really bring this to life is if he had somebody else with him, a foil, if you like. And I thought, yeah, that, that makes sense. So then I thought, okay, if there's going to be, this mostly going to be about, there are other characters in it, there are other locations, but it's mostly about two people in the sea. Who is this person? And I thought, I need to make this person as different from Bill as I possibly can. So, male, female, um, you know, middle class, well off, protected. Someone who said a completely different, much, much more threatened existence, and create this kind of culture clash within the boat, and these two versions of that, and then the two people in the boat. And I wrote the piece where Bill finds Aya half dead and sort of re- revives her. And actually, as a character, she bang, she was just there, mm-hmm. and that was her. You know, she's very feisty. She's very brave, she's Mm. wily and her character never changed Mm. throughout the edits Mm. so that was the sort of evolution if you like of the stories from the sea to the the book Yeah, there's quite a lot of uh, stories at the moment about um, refugees at at, at sea and capsizing and it's the first mention that I've come across of somebody of Berber culture and heritage and their stories generally, you know, they're not told, they're hidden. No. Nobody talks about what it means to be a Berber. So how did you settle on that? I settled on that because, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, I love the sea and I'm a surfer. 
So I've been to Morocco four times, and I'm going again this November. I love I love the place, and where we go surfing is north and south of the city of Agadir, so it's quite far south. And it was it was only on the second or third trip that I began to get this realization that there was an indigenous culture, although nomadic, an indigenous culture of that part of the world, which isn't Arabic and which actually has had this, which has survived through Arabic domination, Roman domination, French domination, Spanish, I think, at some point Mm. as well. This very, very strong, fiercely independent culture that has survived through conquest, basically, and colonialism of various kinds. Mm. Um, And we we stayed with the Berber and, uh, you know, and and we stayed with Mohammed and, and his family. And I got to know them a bit and a bit about them. And so that's where that came from. Mm, okay what did you discover that's really different from arabic culture is it just the language or are there other they are um islamic but not um so fiercely so as far as i understand it with arabic culture in the way sort of women dress or makeup or that kind of thing the berber culture is much freer so particularly with, with there's, there's more alcohol drinking so although morocco is a is a muslim country it's not muslim at the sort of state level so they will produce and buy alcohol for mm. example so um yeah they're, they're more liberal i i, I suppose mm. so we've got these two characters yeah on the boat and uh they're very ingenious uh in how they do survive um there are a number of things that I'd just like to pick up just because yeah. the ingenuity of it struck me um, water's an issue you're surrounded by water but you need fresh water yes. to drink so how do they solve that problem you have to distill it so the way they do it is that Aya is uh, on a barrel which has stagnant water in it um, so they can't drink that they try and they get ill or Bill gets ill so what they do is uh, they, they use the knife and they, they cut off the, the top of it and they turn it over and they fill it with seawater and then they put his storm chaser jacket on top of that with the knife in the middle and then an old can bear with me this is, sorry, this is rather complex an old can underneath that so what happens is the seawater heats up it condensates on the kind of roof of this homemade s- still if you like and then gathers to the point of gravity where the knife is and, uh, and then drips into the can Mm-hmm. And um, there are instances of people who have been caught in boats where they, where they, or, or in the desert where they, where they do this is the only way to get water. Mm. If I ever I capsize, I need to be with a bill because <laughs> I'm not sure I would have come up with that one on my own. He's uh, pretty, pretty ingenious. And then the other uh, thing that he he does that um, with, with Aya, in fact, I think it's her idea, not his, isn't it? Uh, when uh, the seagull comes yes um, they're very weak at this point in, yes. in the journey and it and you know the gull is really waiting for that moment when it can feast on them that's right um and she has a brilliant idea she does so they see the bird in the sky and of course if you're in the deep ocean you see a bird you are near land so they play dead mm. knowing the bird will come down and they capture the bird and they tie the, the fishing line to its foot and they let it go so of course it goes up into the sky and then it makes a, a path for land so they know the direction of the land even though they can't see it on the horizon 
they then reel the poor gull back in like a <laughs> like a kite and row in that direction and then do the same again until they find land until they mm. they land on this rather mysterious island mm. we won't take people too far into the story but we will go as far as the island with them yeah because there they meet a third character they tell do. us about stefan so stefan is um a sort of uh, fisherman stroke people trader and a rather dodgy character and aya is carrying a, a, a tr- the, the treasure of her tribe and this uh, inadvertently is sort of uh, revealed to, to Stefan, who believes that you know he should get hold of this and that they will be rescued and that he can he can then give them safe passage if they pay him. So all those dynamics are set up. So it becomes a very very tense tense situation. So he's. I thought it'd be interesting that they meet somebody else, and of course they're overjoyed because they've, they've met somebody. And they think they're on safe. They think, you know, I found land. There was food here. There's a person here. There's a chance of rescue. They think the safety, mm-hmm. and actually, it turns out that they've just gone from one kind of danger in, in, into another. And they have to navigate. They've they've learned to navigate literally the sea and survival and be ingenious to survive. And then on the island, they have to find or, or discover in themselves and master a kind of set of new skills to navigate different different kind of danger. Mm-hmm. A lot is about uh, coming to know people as well, isn't it? I think there's one point in the story where uh, Bill says he's just a normal boy. Yeah. And then the question is, yes, but what's normal? So yeah. a lot is about coming to know other people, isn't it? Yes. Well, he, I mean, I suppose um, at first glance, he appears to be relatively uh, sort of bland. He's had, you know, a very safe, loving background. He's a white English middle class well off and he says yes I'm just a normal boy but of course that's not normal for most that kind of background isn't normal for most people in the world and it certainly isn't for Aya so she finds the idea of um, bringing trees in at Christmas as exotic to her as he does about you know eating eating camel hump so yeah there's there's no such thing as normal Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit let's talk about Aya's storytelling strategy First of all, I wanted to ask you, because there's reference, obviously, to the Arabian Nights and Scheherazade there, and there are other references. I mean, the the boat is called the Pandora, so there's kind of other kind of myth and legend uh, seeping in there. So are these uh, traditional stories, are they quite important to you, first of all? Yes, I like a good fairy story. We all do. You know, D- Disney make a lot of money for lots of reasons, but one of them is they just pick it, often just pick a, a damn good story. And what you have to remember about these stories, whether it's Grimm's fairy tales or Arabian Nights, is that these are stories that have been crafted, different versions of them, through different cultures over hundreds and hundreds of years. So the one that lands with us has often evolved, and often there are many, many different versions of that. So I find all of that deeply fascinating and I did it did occur to me that she could tell some of these tales and the Arabian Nights unlike so Grimm's fairy tales is kind of born and bred in the dark forests of Europe um Arabian Nights is way more expansive than that it it's got tales from the furthest Orient all the way to Morocco it's it's a real mix and I thought wouldn't it be great if she could tell some of these stories and maybe they could reveal something about her and I, I started reading them, and of course there are many, many of them, and I absolutely love them. But I couldn't find 
stories that fitted within the story, which would have been really convenient and really easy and, and lovely. So what I had to do instead was use those as a starting point to create new stories. Mm. So it effectively... What Aya does is use stories that appear to be from 1001 Nights and have a lot of those tropes of evil sultans and brave, courageous heroes and treasure and genies and all of that and make her own stories. But the stories she tells are partly Arabian Nights, they're partly her own experience, and she's telling him, in a way, the story of, of who she is and where she's from. But then there are also elements of the sea and the sky and the situation that they're in that, that, are, that are blended in as well. So I think like a lot of writers, I'm a little bit obsessed with what stories are and what they mean and how they get mm-hmm. put together. I suppose in a way that's truer to the Arabian Nights than if you'd just taken one of those stories and made her tell it. Yes. Because Shahrazad tells the stories that she needs to to survive exactly so in a sense it's a closer connection than just a retelling I think that, of those. That's, a, that's a really really good insight yes that's absolutely right so for those that don't know Sherazard is taken by the a new bride is taken by the by the king every night and um, killed in the morning and she starts to tell a story and doesn't finish it in the morning and so he he then keeps her alive one more day and she keeps her she keeps herself alive by giving him stories and him wanting, which of course is the human condition, him wanting to know the stories keeps the whole thing going a thousand and one times. Mm. And it's probably as, as important to the survival of Bill as it is to Aya in this particular case because it gives him a reason to want to well, keep the un- going in a the, way. Yeah, the underlying... Th- I mean, it's a story of survival and there is the blood and guts of, of catching fish and fending off sharks and water and all of that, and what you actually have to do to survive. But the underlying theme is that we need more than fish and bread and water to make us human. And stories is how we understand things. It's how mm. we understand the, the world. And yes, you're absolutely right, there is just that theme of stories will keep us alive. Mm. So the stories, to a degree, give them mm. hope. Mm. Was there anything, because, you know, it could be quite messy survival, couldn't it? And learning to kill your first animal, your first turtle. Um, was there anything that you felt you had to pare back because of the audience for your story? Well, I didn't, shy, I didn't shy back from some of the detail, but um, I can't remember who said it, but, you know, the story is a contract of imagination between the writer and the reader. In other words you don't spell out every detail. And actually, sometimes, if you're a bit spare on the detail, the reader will fill in the gaps anyway. So you don't need to be gratuitous. Mm-hmm. But I did think it was really important to have the death of the turtle in there. Not that I'm encouraging people to go out and kill mm-hmm. turtles, but, and, and they don't want to. Mm-hmm. But there is just this real moment where she catches the turtle and then says, we're going to kill it and eat it. And Bill says, I, I can't do that. And she says, well, do you want to live? It's that simple. So it's, it's about, you know, what we must do. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was really important it was there, but there was far more detail in the original draft, mm-hmm. which, I, which then got cut out mm-hmm. in the editing. Mm-hmm. I think it's really beautifully done because it is food, but they see it as more than food. They see it as part of a very beautiful world, and there's quite a lot in your writing, which I'm guessing, again, comes from your love of the sea that is just so appreciative 
of how beautiful the world is that we inhabit, even though we're going through extreme circumstances. <laughs> Destroying it rapidly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there's that appreciation of it, but the thing is, it's not something just pretty and nice. It's terrible and terrifying. Uh, you know, nature it can be generous and giving, but very cruel and awful as well. So they're kind of, whilst appreciating the beauty, they're connecting with mm. with all of that. So um, when we eat meat, we we see the animal in the field and we see what's on our plate, but we don't see the process in, in between. And I, I think it's there's an honesty in the fact that detail is in there and that they that they love they love the taste of the turtle it has to be said mm. and but they kind of have this you know it's complex and it's messy they have the total revulsion of having to kill this they, they appreciate this beautiful animal then they realize they have to kill it and there's the awfulness of that but then there's the deep satisfaction that this is going to keep us alive mm. you know they're on the verge of death mm. so it's it's partly about you know what people have to do in the most extreme mm-hmm. of circumstances and yeah within that context is appreciating nature and the absolute beauty of it but mm-hmm. mm-hmm. realising how merciless it can be as well mm. I want to talk a bit about the process of writing I know that we were talking prior to the podcast yeah. and you gave me a little bit of an insight into the fact that this wasn't written in a straight chronology, as it were, which I found fascinating. Uh, Can you tell us a bit more about that? I mean, previous books I've written were... I mean, there was, you know, tinkering around the edges, but the the story was kind of laid out. It was a fairly easy... Not easy, it's never... God, it's never easy, but there was a fairly straightforward path to follow. With this one, okay, there's the themes, right? So you've got this boy and a girl in a boat uh, and at sea. But there's a lot to fill within that uh, about their emotions, about getting to know each other, about their backstory, about what they need to do to survive, about the storytelling. And for some reason, rather than writing it in, in some sort of chronological order, I, I just wrote bits. And then I, it, was, it, was, it was kind of like painting, like having blank jigsaw pieces... And, and painting them all individually, and then seeing what the best possible combination of those is. So the sto- the Sherazad stories, the, the stories within the stories, I had to think carefully about the order of those and where they would sit. And then there was the sort of parallels about a survival story. And then there's there's an encounter with some whales. And then there's the, at what point do they meet the island? So I did. I kind of wrote it out of order. And then the very Free, free way. I was out of, you know, I didn't have a contract for this book, mm. so part of me was just thinking, write whatever the hell you want, mm. just experiment, take a risk, and I, I did, and um, then sort of thought about the best order of those, and also about the the, the bits I like best. So, you know, th- there were more possible chunks than could have gone into the, the book, but again, it was just about creating those and then finding which which are the best bits and which fit mm. quite interesting when we think about how we teach children to plan stories that can yeah. be quite rigid actually there's more than one way to do this and maybe what we should do is offer possibilities and different ways of approaching it and then and then you see what works for you and this particular story rather than it always having to go on this kind of story mountain I literally couldn't agree more 
So with the Bath Spa MA, we're very lucky to work with the brilliant, brilliant David Alman. And he, he said, it appears like a simple and linear story, but that's not the way it comes out of my head. And he said, does anybody have one of these? And he showed us his notebook, which was, you know, to call it a mind map, would be to pretend there was an order there. You know, it's chaos. It was kind of bits of drawings and small sections with sentences written and, you know, not sort of down the page, but thrown together. And I think that's the way our minds are. Mm-hmm. The order comes later. Mm-hmm. So I absolutely, I, I think, I mean, I've done a reasonable amount of uh, teaching now and doing workshops. I'm lucky enough to have done that in schools, quite a lot in schools, but also outside of schools where there's been more scope. And we do exactly that. So it, it inspires me, but it also upsets me when kids say, can I write about this? They ask him permission. It's like, you're the author. Yeah. You can write what you like. Or they, and I sort of give them uh, this thing where they say, look, just don't worry, let's do some experiments, let's do some thought exercises to get some ideas, and then we'll make the story later. Mm-hmm. And again, it, there's a kind of, can we do it that way? Because it's so different from mm-hmm. this ordered, structured way that they've been taught mm-hmm. to think about things. Mm-hmm. I think also, I'm just thinking about it from a kind of school point of view I think there's an assumption that the writing is something that happens in the hand with a pen but yeah. actually it's something that happens in the head you know this is just a, a vehicle for putting it on paper yes but it's really drama isn't it that you create in your head yes it is drama and, and conflict so you know what is a story first and foremost it's somebody wanting something and and all the things that are stopping them from getting it that's quite linear but then all the things about, well, who is this person and what do they want and what's stopping them from getting it and all the things that might come in, that's very, very non-linear and it's very, very messy. And I, I, can, I can only speak for myself, not, not for other um, writers, but I've sort of learned to trust that process a bit. Mm. So there's things like Gull in the book that can sometimes only appear as bits but then become <laughs> mm. more important. And I have written stuff... I'm writing a book about whales and whaling at the moment where a minor character suddenly bursts into the imagination and, and starts taking over mm. and one uh, witty author on um, Twitter said my characters won't bloody well do what I'm telling them to <laughs> today and it's like you're yeah, great because when that happens that's when it gets really fun Yeah, yeah. and often that's the best stuff yeah I want to ask you about beginnings and endings. Yes. We start with the beginning, because I think that you, you said that you changed your beginning. I did, yeah. So my initial um, opening was with Bill in, in the boat, by himself, having been through this storm experience. Uh, and uh, it was my agent, the very wonderful uh, Catherine Clark at Felicity Bryan, who said, you know, you need to show the storm. You know, you need, so there is that thing of the hero coming from their ordinary world, and you have to share a bit of their ordinary world to go into the adventure. You don't start in the adventure. You've got to have a little bit before, whether it's Harry Potter or Luke Skywalker, whomever. So that's what we... Yeah, I, I wrote that later and added it on. But, of course, it does establish a little bit about Bill and quite a lot about who he is and where he's come from yeah. and why he's there. Yeah, yeah. And he's a bit reluctant, really, to be there, isn't he, in a way? Um, I, yes, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes in life, you find yourself in a rather bad situation, and there's a little, little part of you that rather arrogantly says, I, I, I can't be in this 
situation. Mm. I, I shouldn't be here. Mm. You bloody well are, you know, <laughs> and you've got to cope with it. And yeah. whatever's happening, you've, you've got to do it and you've got to deal with it. Yeah. But it's such a, a shock and it's so mm. new that you almost can't accept that it's, it's mm. happening. And mm. you all, all of us go, well, why me? Mm. why not you mm-hmm. you know everyone everyone so he's he's thinking that he's thinking why is a terrible thing happened to me of course then he meets Aya mm-hmm. and he begins to realize how privileged his life has absolutely. been absolutely now we can't talk about the ending um in detail not in, not, not with spoilers but I'm quite interested to know if you knew where you were heading or whether yeah. you had to make changes with that as well certain things about the ending I absolutely knew about whether they were whether they were going to both survive, for example, um, and, and whether they were going to perhaps be together or not. But I think my initial aim was to have a more complete, happy, straightforward ending. But at the same time, I didn't want to do anything too ambiguous, because I think that that's, that cheats the reader. So what I've gone for is something which. I hope gives a sense of, of, of completion. Again, I can't say why, mm. but you know, there's a lot of threads or, or, or strands or themes which are kind of wrapped up. Mm. But at the same time, given that not only nature but the human world is messy and complex and difficult, the answers aren't there because mm. they're not in, in life, are they? So mm. it, it's um, everyone who's read it or most. Seem to really, really like the ending, and actually, one of the things they really like about it is that some of the big questions, or some of, some of the questions, are still open and un- un- unanswered. Mm-hmm. I think most people, when they put a book down, want to keep thinking about it, and that's what that ending does. It keeps you yes there. You haven't finished with the book when you close it. So yeah, yeah and I think great. that's again where the, where the sort of uh, the contract comes in and the reader's imagination because you, you finish a book when you finish it for a reason but yes the readers are then free to think about or even decide in a way mm. what happens what happens next mm. so Chris you've said you're working on a whaling book what else have we got to look forward to from you in the not too distant future well great part of my life has been a whale and dolphin conservation I've been all around the world um seeing whales and dolphins and they are in really dire straits at the moment so I wanted to write something that that talks about that and particularly bycatch and the fact that you know um, whales could be the answer to global warming or part of the answer to, to global warming because they're so good for carbon sequestration all of that but also a very personal story because obviously I've worked in whale as I said I worked in whale conservation but um, I'm half Norwegian and my uncle works on whaling boats in Antarctica after the war and my my grandfather was a boat builder he didn't fancy whaling but his brothers were whalers so I've kind of got a grasp of both sides of the argument if you like and again it's the sea and I've been reading uh, Moby Dick as inspiration for that which I'm loving so the next book is going to be about um, one family's history but also the history of one whale and it's called The Last Whale? question mark or the wonder so it's really about the choice that we have uh, because if we don't mend our ways huge numbers but also many many species will go extinct in the next 20 years and it's even possible that whales and dolphins will be wiped off the face of the planet forever so 
it's partly about my own personal family history, but it's a little bit about a sort of fictionalised version of the Extinction Rebellion movement and Greta Thunberg, which young people are just engaging with in such a vibrant, exciting, radical way. I find that really exciting, and I think it'd be really putting that kind of uh, hard-edged young person's environmental movement into a, a, a book for teens really excites me. I'm really enjoying writing it. It excites me too, and I can't wait to read uh, the next one. But in the meantime, I know readers are going to really enjoy Girl Boy C. So thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you, Nikki. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk, plus via iTunes or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues. Just Imagine also has a free fortnightly newsletter packed full of the latest news, CPD training, reviews and giveaways. To sign up, visit justimagine.co.uk forward slash newsletter.